you look back in the life history of a tooth, back into the embryo, when we were all embryos in our mother's bodies, and teeth start to develop, the starting point is really simple. Two types of undifferentiated cells that exchange various signals. And the process of tooth development is a gradual process where the structure gets more and more complicated. So what we want to make is that very early stage. And what we showed is that you can make that. And as I said, if you then take it out of that context and put it in the adult mouth, it carries on. Once it started, it doesn't stop. And it forms the entire tooth. That's our guest, Dr. Paul Sharp. And this is the Further Health Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the Further Health Podcast. In this show, you explore the people and science behind the innovations, helping humanity enjoy healthier, longer lives, and how you can be a part of it all. Today, we're guiding you through the remarkable science of restoring smiles using biology and how this helps people enjoy healthier, longer lives. When we talk about living healthier for longer, we must also include oral and dental health, which plays such a crucially important role in physical and mental health. According to the World Health Organization, over a billion people worldwide, that's 20% of the human population, experience trauma to the teeth at some point in their lives, which can lead to tooth loss and lower quality of life. Current treatments are costly, lengthy, and often require additional procedures throughout the patient's life which can be financially and emotionally draining. But what if there were a better way? What if there were a way to give people their smiles back using biology, using what we know about how teeth grow and develop? What if this biological tooth regeneration technology one day replaces artificial dental treatments with the real thing? Scientists working on this technology aim to create a treatment that can regenerate your damaged or lost teeth using your own biology. Today, our guest, Dr. Paul Sharp, is one of the leaders and pioneers in the smile regeneration research. Dr. Paul Sharp is the head of the Department of Craniofacial Development and Stem Cell Biology at the historic King's College in London a wellspring of biomedical pioneers and innovation. As department head, Dr. Sharp leads multiple academic research groups consisting of world-class biomedical researchers aiming to unravel the causes of diseases and translate these discoveries into treatments to improve health worldwide. Dr. Sharp has been at this for 30-plus years and counting, publishing over 300 research papers to date. His research focuses on the molecular control of tooth development, dental stem cell biology, and stem cell-based therapies in clinical dentistry. Dr. Sharp joins us on the Further Health Podcast to talk about his biotooth research project and his quest to understand and apply the biology of tooth regeneration in the clinical setting. So with all that, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Paul Sharp. 
as we guide you through the history of the biotooth research, its current status, where it's headed, and what needs to happen for it to become a clinical treatment so that people in the near future may get their smiles back. This episode is brought to you by Further Health. People are living longer, but not necessarily healthier. Further Health is a 501c3 nonprofit working to advance promising scientific research, helping people enjoy healthier, longer lives. But all this cannot be done without you. Creating a world where people enjoy healthier, longer lives depends on good people like you to make it happen. And you can help by making a tax-deductible donation. Further Health believes that you have a vital role in advancing this mission. By donating, you'll play this vital role in supporting the research that we cover and help power the hundreds of hours of work that goes into making each episode just for you. So head on over to furtherhealth.org forward slash donate to make a donation. Again, that's furtherhealth.org forward slash donate. Make your mark. Create a world where people enjoy healthier, longer lives. Paul, we're thrilled to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for for your interest and for your listeners' interest uh, in learning a little bit about what we're doing uh, in this uh, in this area. Um, I often get asked how I got into regenerative biology and in regenerative dentistry in particular and why we started this this biotooth project which is what predominantly we're going to talk about today and it reminded me thinking about that it was actually one of these kind of events that started the whole process off um and that came about because we'd been studying <clears throat> for for many years really how teeth develop what controls tooth development the genes, the cells, how do you get particular shapes of teeth and sizes of teeth at particular regions in the mouth? And we just uncovered um, some genes that, that appear to be very important in controlling tooth shape. And at a forum like this, somebody asked the question, well, basically, you know, okay, that's nice, but, but what does it mean? Uh, you know, does, you know, how can you take this forward into clinical dentistry? And I had to think of something very quickly, of course. And um, I just said, well, by understanding how teeth develop, we might be able to uh, achieve the development of a tooth as it occurs in the embryo in the adult mouth. Um, and that was that. But I actually then started to think, well, maybe maybe we should think about this because, uh, you know, if, if there is a general, if, if the general public are, are thinking this way, then then as a scientist, I should be thinking this way. So I just sat down with a piece of paper and came up with what was the simplest thing we could try, basically. And the concept was that I'd been studying development, tooth development, which happens in an embryo. Did we know enough about how that process begins to try and make that process happen in the adult mouth? Um, and 
we did, as it turned out, and we, were, and we were able to show that we could do that. So we could take cells and grow them in the lab or just take them and, and, and manipulate them, put them together in the lab and grow a tooth. And um, we then shortly discovered that we could take these early tooth primordia, we call them, that they're, they're little tiny beginnings of a tooth and we could transplant them into the mouth of an adult an animal in this case and they'd carry on making teeth and it was it was one of those moments where you think great this, this clearly works amazingly um the idea that you could put cells together um and form a structure that normally gives rise to an organ in an embryo and you could put those in the adult mouth and, you know, they wouldn't form a cancer or they wouldn't die or they, you know, they did one thing. They made a tooth. They did exactly what they would have done if they were sitting in an embryo. And that's what started the whole thing. We published that uh, way back in 2004 uh, and received a, a lot of interest, basically. It was the first demonstration that you could take um, – in this case, one of the cell types we used was an adult cell population, not embryonic. The other, I'll come into that in a shortly. But you could actually see that you could have a concept that you could sit back and say, hey, this may actually work. So the concept is you have a cell implant. So the state of the art at the moment in clinical dentistry for replacing a lost tooth is a, a dental implant, a metal implant. That's a metal screw that is screwed into the jawbone um, and then is capped with plastic or ceramic cap that looks like a tooth. Um, the biotooth concept is to have a cell-based implant, not a metal-based implant, but you implant cells that we've worked with in the lab that will grow into a tooth in situ in the mouth. And, of course, for, for, for a number of years, the, the question that was always fired back at me was, well, how will that tooth erupt? Because normally, if you think about our teeth, they're developing in an embryo, and they don't start to erupt for a, for a long time. So how are we going to do that? And thought of all sorts of ways we could do it because there's a lot known about tooth eruption, about molecules involved. And actually, it's one of those things where, where the, the, the less you do, the, the better you are, because we didn't do any of the experiments we thought of. What we did was just left the animals longer and the teeth just erupted on their own. That once they start making this tooth in the mouth, they don't stop. They just carry on and they do the whole process. The teeth erupt. They make new bone, bone that attaches the tooth, and they make a ligament. So they do exactly what they would normally do, but in a different context, essentially. So we showed that that was possible in a particular way. And um, as I say, we got a lot of interest. We got uh, commercial interest uh, from all sorts of people, venture capital investors. Um, we're interested in uh, in funding us, basically. And 
we developed plans and milestones for projects, uh, etc. Now, we were able to, to extend those early observations and provide what's called proof of, proof of concept, that indeed you could identify cell populations that you could put together in the lab to form a tooth. And I should backtrack at this point briefly, not to go into too much of the developmental embryology, but in order to make a tooth, you need two different types of cell, and they're completely different. They're called epithelium and mesenchyme. That's what teeth normally form from in the embryo. And we were able to show that you could use adult cells to replace one of those embryonic populations. But the other population, you needed to use embryonic cells. Okay. But that was enough to provide proof of concept in an animal uh, with animal cells and also in an animal with human cells. Cells just work the same whether they come from an animal or a human. Um, and that is pretty much where we have been for the last at least 10 years. And there is a good reason why everything is stalled at that point. And that is simply that the cells we can obtain to provide the proof of concept are not cells that you could use in a clinical context. You could not put those, you couldn't get those cells, you couldn't treat those cells, and you certainly couldn't put them in a human mouth. It's a big difference going what you can do in a laboratory to what you can do in a patient. And that turns out to be a very, very thick brick wall to get over, under, or straight through. Um, how do you identify cells that you could take from a patient, grow them in some way in the lab, put them together, and put them back in that patient so they form a tooth? Now, as I said, the way we were able to do that in animals was to have one of the two essential cell populations come from an embryo. And you cannot do that in humans. You know, you can't take lots of human embryos and harvest these cells and use them to make a tooth. It's just not even, can't even think about it. It would never, oh, uh, never be possible. Uh, is, this, is this problem true of other tissues and organs within developmental biology, or is it specific to biology? It's, it's true of a lot of different organs, yes. Many, many organs, in fact, a lot of organs sort of on the outside of our body and some inside all develop in a very similar way to a tooth. Hair, for example. So um, this, sweat, this sweat. problem goes beyond, you know, just the dental tissue and organs. So it, yeah seems to suggest that if there is a solution to this problem, let's call it, what would you call this? The, uh, the uh, maintaining inductive capacity problem? Exactly. That's, that's exactly what we call it. Yeah, excuse me. So what were really the implications of overcoming this challenge, you know, extends beyond bio-tooth. And I'm, I'm glad you raised that because, um, it, yeah, it does go beyond teeth. And, and hair are a great example because um, they develop in a very, very similar way to teeth. And 
we know that in hair, you have exactly the same problem. So when you take one of these, this, you know, inductive cell populations that in the embryo can make a tooth or make a hair. And you take those out of the embryo and you grow them in the lab because you get very few cells from an embryo and you need a lot more to make a hair or a tooth in this way. You grow them in the lab within 24 to 48 hours, they lose that inductive capacity. They become useless for what you want. And the reason is, is there's probably a few reasons, but you know, they've been taken completely out of context. So when you take cells from the body and put them in a, in a lab, they, 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 they change. So the challenge is how can you either restore that ability or indeed induce it? So, you know, let's say I want to take cells from, uh, your, your gums. Scrape some cells off, grow them in the lab, and put some magic cocktail on them so that they become tooth inductive. Uh, and that's really what you're gonna, we're going to have to do, not necessarily with gum cells, but other cell types as well, is to identify what it is that the cells lose that they originally had in the embryo and develop really simple ways of inducing or restoring that in the cells. And I say really simple ways, and it's absolutely critical. I mean, some of your your viewers may know of, of the latest techniques using gene manipulation, CRISPR-induced pluripotent stem cells, where in essence, you can make any cell into another one. That's a very oversimplification, but you can do that in the lab. So you could say, well, let's take some of your skin cells and use these techniques in the lab and make them into tooth inducing cells. And theoretically that's possible. But if you think about what that would involve in a clinical context, a patient coming in, we collect their cells and then they go through weeks of processing in the lab, genetic manipulation, which the regulator authorities don't like, uh, all under proper controlled conditions and at the end we end up with this cell type and then you come back in and we do your bio tooth and we present you with a bill for a hundred thousand dollars because that's the kind of money we're talking about so we can do lots of things in the lab um but i think it's really important to never lose sight of the fact that the aim of this and really the only aim is to have it as a clinical therapy and a widespread clinical therapy that will will replace metal implants. And in order for that to even happen, regardless of how good the science is, it has got to be cost competitive with a dental implant. It, dental implants are, I don't know what they are in America, $1,000, $2,000. $2, I think people would pay more for a biotooth, maybe even up to $5,000. I'm pretty certain not many people would pay $50,000. So there are lots of things we could do, but I think we'd be wasting our time if the ultimate goal is to make this a clinical therapy. We could do lots of great science, and I'm absolutely sure of that, and people probably are. I want to I wanted to pin that right there and go back a little bit on the subject of developmental biology. Well, first of all, 
it's not every day you meet someone whose primary work is uh, to regrow tooth. So, you know, when people ask you these days, let's say at a dinner party or the pub, what do you do? You know, how do you, how do you answer that question? Very simply. Well, I'll get, the truthful answer is I try and avoid answering <laughs> because, uh, you know, we're, we're sitting here talking for an hour uh, in, with the aim that, that people listening sort of in that context will understand. And I'm not going to stand in a pub or a dinner party talking to somebody for an hour about it. So the, I guess the, the simple answer is if you know how any organ develops in the first place, with modern science, you can start to begin to recapitulate that outside the body in some form in a context that you can use in a, as a clinical therapy. So, you know, you can make islet cells from the pancreas outside the body using various techniques to put these back into the pancreas to, to treat type 1 diabetes. You can, you know, and, and that's the whole arena of regenerative medicine um that's a cell type producing an, a whole organ is is you know uh, you know several levels above that but um the key thing here is that you know organs are incredibly complex and it, they might not seem it but teeth are really complex organs you know even though we, we just use them for eating and smiling they're really complex. They contain two different types of mineral, three if you include the bone. The hardest material in in in, um, in nature, the outside enamel, which is totally unique to teeth, made by specialized cells. I mean, they're really complex structures. So you can't sit down and design a way to make that. You you, you could just I don't think you could ever do it using any kind of regenerative approaches. Um, and that's where developmental biology comes in. Because if you look back in the life history of a tooth, back into the embryo, when we were all embryos in our mother's bodies and teeth started to develop, the starting point is really simple. Two types of undifferentiated cells that exchange various signals. And the process of tooth development is a gradual process where the structure gets more and more complicated. So what we want to make is that very early stage. And what we showed is that you can make that. And as I said, if you then take it out of that context and put it in the adult mouth, it carries on. Once it started, it doesn't stop. And it forms the entire tooth. So the concept of making an organ is 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 very difficult because, you know, they're so complex. But using the power and understanding of developmental biology and going back to the time in the embryo where things start and trying to make those structures, then it is possible. You can do that for hair in the same way you can do it for teeth. And indeed, other organs now are many, many are coming on stream, kidney, and, and yeah, I'm sure you know many of these. Um, so... That is essentially what regenerative medicine or regenerative dentistry, you know, in our case, is all about. Do you remember, you know, what was it that steered you in the direction of studying this field? Uh, developmental biology, I 
got into when I did my PhD. Um, I just happened to pick a project that I found interesting. It turned out to be developmental biology. Um, and I stayed in that field. I still am, to be honest. Um, I got into teeth purely through serendipity. Um, in the early days of gene cloning, I cloned some genes and discovered that they were expressed in, in developing teeth. And I, I also had genes in the kidney and the brain and, and lots of other organs. But I learned that you could do things with teeth that were, at that time, really difficult with other organs. And that is that you could grow them in the lab and transplant them into the body and they'd still grow. And so I thought, well, that, that's a big advantage. And that was the way I then began to focus on tooth development. And the biotooth is, is essentially leading on from, from that initial concept. You weren't always developmental biologists. Can you talk about <laughs> what's happening in your background? For our listeners who can't see Paul sitting in a studio with various recording equipment and soundproof foam and various bass guitars in the background. You know, ever since I was really young, I've been playing music and playing in bands. And uh, <clears throat> I, when I finished university um, and went back home, not really having much of an idea what I was going to do, um, it was early, it was uh, 1977, and um, it was the punk explosion in, in, that started off in London and, and spread very quickly. And myself and two, two friends formed a band uh, in our hometown of Sheffield in England. And we were Sheffield's first band of that genre. Although I have to say we weren't punk. Um, we were a combination of sort of, if you imagine the Clash and Talking Heads morphed <laughs> together. We were like that. And, you know, we, we're still going today. This is hence the recording studio. In fact, we're playing tomorrow night locally at a festival. Um, and I don't know. It's actually a lot of scientists play instruments and a lot of scientists are in bands. Um, you know, I've played in bands with other scientists, you know, very often. Um, we have a big craniofacial conference every two years. Uh, and myself and two other tour attendees get together and, and play as a band. Um, and I think we now get invited to the conference just to play in the band. <laughs> Two headliners. Um, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's just, you know, I always think it's important to be able to, to, to switch off from whatever you do um, because it, 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 it refreshes your mind. Um, so, you know, science is my career and my job, uh, but I love playing music and I love playing sport. Um, and usually, you know, certainly when I'm playing music, recording or playing live, I'm not thinking about science at all. Um, and unless you ask me the question, as you've just done, when I'm thinking about science, I'm not playing music usually. Um, so it's, uh, I, yeah, it's, it's, you know, anybody that plays music knows what a what a um, a great thing it is to, to do that in whatever form, and I just happen to play particular kinds of music and uh, being able to build a studio in my garage. You started 
studying developmental biology, you know, in the late 80s, you had at that point started to work on understanding how teeth develop. And in 2004, we had that landmark proof of concept, you know, that we can develop a tooth primordium and implant it into the animal and watch it develop. Yeah. You mentioned previously that, you know, for the better part of a decade or so, we've been stalled. Could you talk more about less less of this of the science because we we explain the central challenge there what other roadblocks remain besides the science the main roadblock is funding so the reason we've been doing very little on this uh it's been ticking over but, but the reason we've been doing it has just been ticking over the last ten, few years is funding so with this kind of work, there are, there are essentially two types of funding. There's government agency funding, like you, it'd be the NIH in America, the MRC in the UK, and then there's more commercial funding. Now, on the commercial side, what traditionally people like venture capital investors want is uh, to be pretty sure that what you're going to do is going to happen. And, um, and just as importantly, they want it quickly. So when, when we started doing this, we got, I got a call from a major venture capital organization in the United States. And I'd sent them the details and I'd sent them a program of work for five years that would take us to a particular point where Ideally, we would then be ready to think about going into the clinic and however millions that was going to cost. And they, they came back very quickly and said, right, we're really interested. We'll give you all the money, but you've got to do it in two years. And, you know, I could have taken the money and pretended we were going to do it in two years, but we couldn't. I knew there is no way. And it doesn't matter how much money you throw at it. You can't do all the experiments at once. Because you have to do experiments and learn from them and do the next one. And that's what takes the time. So I said, yeah, well, thank you, but no, thank you. We just could not do that. And that's been a continuous problem, basically, is the guarantee that what your product is going to look like and that you can deliver in a certain time. So you come then to the this federal kind of funding where we can write a grant to do this. The issue there is that actually what we're proposing in terms of a list of experiments over a three or five year period is not really what they would call cutting cutting edge science, basically. What we need to do is test a lot of things to see if they work and then move on to the next thing. And that doesn't make for a good NIH grant. Basically, that's tradition. That's not the kind of thing that you would normally put in a grant. And so the grants become non-competitive. Um, and that's been the situation. I, I have to admit, I, based on that, I have for, for a long time now not written a grant in this area. And I've not gone out and sought funding from venture capitalists or other kinds of donors up until this point. Basically, for those reasons, 
because I know what we need is not only money, but, but time. Um, and it's only, I guess, uh, probably in the last six months or so that we have started, I've started to revisit this and we've now come up with, um, some new ideas that I think, um, are the next stage of, of advancing this, this biotooth field. And we'll take us further than we are now and a lot closer to where we, where we need to be. Can you tell me more about what those, what you've been thinking about in the past six months? So, tooth induction, the formation of a tooth, requires cells to talk to each other. And traditionally, cells do that throughout the body by sending molecules. One cell type produces a molecule, the other cell receives it, responds, and sends a molecule back. This is how nearly all organs develop. So, one of the key things we believe is that when tooth cells lose this inductive capacity, it's because they no longer make the right molecules. And if you think about it, if we want to be able to restore that or indeed induce that property in non-dental cells, we need to know what those molecules are, roughly the kind of concentrations and the time you might want to deliver those molecules and in what way. And that's actually quite tough to discover because there's lots of them. We already know a number of them, but those ones don't seem to work. And so the, the question is, how, how do you go about that? And, and, you know, looking for a needle in a haystack, basically. And so things have advanced in the last few years, and there is now a, an area of biology that, that studies things called exosomes or vesicles. These are tiny little packages that cells produce to release material. Uh, and that can include all sorts of things, DNA, RNA, but also these signaling proteins, these, these proteins that give the cells induction. Um, so our, our, com our, 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 our concept is really simple. We take cells that we know are inductive. And thus, the exosomes, these little vesicles they produce, must contain the material that gives that induction capacity. And we can isolate these exosomes. So what we're doing at the moment is we are taking these exosomes, these vesicles from cells that induced, and then we're giving them to cells that don't induce and asking the question, can you then become inductive? Really simple, complex. Uh, uh, context uh, and within that we can do all sorts of experiments that allow us to control this and and we've actually just about to start those experiments now we've been working up on the we, we have to be able to isolate lots of these things and, and we've been working that up let's say that we then that's successful and we identify that these particles from these whatever cells, these inductive cells, will make a non-inductive cell make a tooth become inductive. What we can then do is analyze the payload of those particles. What is it that they are producing? And actually then hone right down on the individual molecules. And I think it's more than one. It will be several molecules we need that are responsible for this. Once we've got that, then it's very, very easy to reproduce that 
make the molecules in the lab activate the pathways they activate. So again, <coughs> we're using the biology to help us. The cells, cells know how to induce a tooth. It's just we don't because we don't know what the cells are producing to induce it. So we just take what they're producing and have a look at them and give them to cells and see if we can do that. And so it's a really simple complex, uh, complex, um, idea. Um, and it wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago because the biology of these vesicles wasn't really understood or known. It's, it's a, it's, it's just a recent development. Uh, people are using this in all sorts of areas to, to stimulate stem cells to differentiate, for example. Um, so that's what we want to do in the next couple of years, basically. Um, hopefully to take us to the next stage. So it sounds like the science is planned out, you're ready to execute. How do you think about the public? Do you think the public has a good understanding of the implications? Where where, where do your thoughts lie on that? Absolute, they've got an absolute very, very good understanding of the implications, judging by the number of emails I get. So whenever we publish a paper in this area, I get swamped <laughs> um, for years, not just the days after, the months after, <laughs> for years. I will get emails now every day from papers we published back in 2004, wanting an update. Where are we going now? Um to the extent that I can't answer them. So I, I have somebody in, in our central office that, that provides a stock answer because it's just too many, basically. That and the, and the other regenerative projects we're doing. Um, so the public have got a real interest in this. And, and I think the reason is that teeth are something we can all relate to, not just because we have them. But, you know, there, there aren't that many people throughout their life that don't have some problems with their teeth whether it's caries or a tooth getting knocked out, playing football or uh, periodontal, you know, anything. And um, not everybody has heart disease or cancer or, you know, whatever that, but everybody has a tooth problem at some time in their life. And, you know, many people have still got a fear of going to the dentist. I don't think anybody likes it. So I think it's something that everybody, the general public, can really relate to. Uh, you know, if I lose a tooth, could I grow a new one? Basically, uh, and that's what we—that's what we're saying. Is that what we're working on? We would like to be at a point where we can begin to say, yes, you know, in the future, you will be able to grow a new tooth rather than having a metal implant, um, and all the anti advantages that gives you. Um, so I think it's it's it, in terms of convincing the public that this is something worth doing. It's really low hanging fruit. We've never had a problem convincing the public. Um, Can you talk a little uh, bit more about the advantages you just mentioned? So you you uh, when you have a metal implant, you don't have a ligament. So your your tooth roots are surrounded by soft tissue. It's called the periodontal ligament, and that is a shock absorber. So that when you eat, it absorbs the shock waves. You know, you bite down on some peanuts or something like that. Um, you, you know, your whole head doesn't vibrate <laughs> because you have this ligament around there. It's a shock absorber. When you have a dental implant, a metal implant, you don't have that. You lose it. And so people with implants will often tell you that I can really feel 
when I had an implant. <clears throat> the other thing is what we're learning now, particularly, I have to say, from things like hip replacements, where for many years you've had a hip replacement, a big piece of metal inserted and, and making contact with bone, is that as the patients get older and their body changes and they, uh, you get changes in the bone, you're starting to see uh, an increase in failures in those. And, and, and teeth are... Uh, metal implants in teeth are probably looking like they're going the same way. The longer you have these in your body, the, and their body's changing with age, the, the more chance there is that they're going to fail and you're going to need something else. <clears throat> the other thing about implants, metal implants, is that you have to have a certain amount of bone on your jaw in order to accept one. And there, there is an official limit beyond which no a reputable dental surgeon will put an implant in. So there are whole cohorts of people like postmenopausal women with osteoporosis, for example, who lose a lot, lose all their teeth because they're losing bone. Sadly, they can't have implants without bone grafts. The big advantage of biotooth, and I alluded to it in passing, is they also make bone. We don't just make a tooth because we're normally in the embryo, a tooth develops by making the tooth and bone at the same time. When we make biotooth, they make bone. So you actually produce bone in the socket where you implant the cell pellet, the cell transplant. So you get bone, you get a normal tooth, you get the periodontal ligament because that's forming with the bone. So you're producing a normal tooth. The only thing you don't get is the right shape. Do you think there are other challenges there that we, we've not considered? I don't think so. No, I mean, we set out thinking that, that the shape of the crown, the bit you see would be really important, but it's not. It's the root that's the most important. We can certainly genetically easily distinguish a biotooth that's going to make uh, a multicuspid tooth, like the molars and premolars at the back. Mm versus a pointed tooth, an incisor or a canine. That, that, that we can distinguish. And I think that's sufficient in order to produce, uh, it, you know, we can cap the crown or treat it, in, uh, manipulate it in various ways so it matches the dentition. The main thing is to have a natural root, um, which is an implant, a metal implant doesn't give you. Right. So how do you, let's, let's explore that a little bit. How, uh, what are the things you look for to determine that the root formation was successful? You know, how do you, at, at what point do you say it's just like the natural tooth root? What, well, what when, it, you- when it erupts, when it starts to appear. So the way we transplant these in animals is that we, uh, we don't drill the bone or anything. We just make a little cut in the gum. So let's say you've lost a tooth. The socket heals over, you get you get that gap, you get that soft tissue. We just make a little cut, an incision at a scalpel. We just widen it a little bit and we put the cell pellet, the cell implant in there, and then we use glue. We cover it up with glue and leave it. And it develops in that, in that socket. And after a period of time, we'll start to erupt. And as the tooth erupts, the roots go down. And that's when you know you've got a tooth. 
that's got no it's got uh, developing roots earlier you you mentioned the challenges with uh securing funding from you know from private equity venture capitalists and government grants with people living longer than ever not necessarily healthier you know why do you, why do you think there isn't more of a push to prioritize biotooth development you know because as you mentioned for example for postmenopausal women you know that affairs that occurs fairly early you know in their lives relative to how long humans are living now so we maybe we look at early you know 50s 60s that's about you know 25 30 years more to live with you know lower bone density and potentially the loss of uh major loss of uh dental organs why do you think there hasn't been more of a push to make this technology available i think from the grant funding side it's competition so you know i i'm interested in making regenerating teeth somebody else will be looking at treating alzheimer's somebody else will be looking at kidney disease or diabetes or cancer or everything else um so and and when you write a grant for funding you you are being compared with these other things basically major diseases heart disease etc and teeth loss of teeth are not considered to be anything like as important as treating potentially treating a major disease having said that on the commercial side it's actually the possibly the opposite because you're dealing with such massive numbers you're dealing with billions of people who this could target um so huge volume um but small cost basically so commercially that actually makes a lot of sense <clears throat> um but like most you know investors they they, they come you know it's usually come back when you've done it kind of thing and we'll we'll look certainly with companies um venture capital of course is a bit different and of course you know the the, the amount of money in the venture capital system is waxes and wanes and goes through periods where nothing seems to be getting funded and then there's suddenly a glut of money um so commercially it, it's it's very um feasible um as long as we can make the bio implant the production costs um that you know are are at least in a ballpark competitive with with the current metal implant um so there's potential to make money but if you're interested in curing lots of diseases whether they're age related diseases or whatever there's a whole long list before you get down to teeth um i mean i did give a lecture some years ago there's a there's a, a big interest in an, an aging institute in the uk and there was a group called i think they were called the methuselah group uh led by Aubrey de Grey was the guy's name from, I think it was Oxford, real character. And he basically had the idea that, you know, we can live forever. What are the challenges we need? Uh, and he invited me to give a talk at the 
one of his big conferences. Um, basically, you know, it's all about if you want to live, say not forever, but for a very long time, it's all about quality of life. Enough so, to do the things you want. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you, you need to have proper brain function. You like your kidneys to work. You like your joints to be reasonably okay. And you'd like to be able to enjoy food. <laughs> so you need teeth, basically. And it sounds very trite and very simple. Um, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's important, basically. Um, and, um, so yeah, I think it, it, it is, it is an interesting area. I mean, you know, we talked about hair. Hair's very similar as well. You know, in fact, it's, it's even further the other way. We, we don't need hair really for much at all other than vanity. But people will spend an enormous amount of money and far more money is being invested in hair replacement and generation than is being invested in tooth replacement and generation. Let's time travel a bit, go into the near future. Let's say the incentives line up where you're able to get some grant funding to execute on your research plans. You know, what what do you see? Well, one, how do you how would those funds be used immediately? And two, what technologies do you envision would that enable would that effort enable the funds for the kinds of thing we do are always used in, in a similar way so you you need funds to pay the salary of a scientist to do the work or scientists um they're all fixed costs overheads you need money to pay for the consumables and the materials for the kinds of analysis the equipment you might use um for any animals you might wish to use for any materials to grow cells these are bread and butter for all grants and they're they're all easy to work out and fix that's what that's what you have to use in terms of (coughs) technology ip patents etc um what if if our vesicle exosome thing works then what we will have is the identification of a specific payload from those particles that does the job the takeaway here is really the discovering and repeating the algorithm to create a reliable biotooth that seems to be the underlying asset that you're trying to develop here how could this be used to address other tissue damage and organs or can it first of all it's proof of concept um proof of concept that you can do this in in any organ uh using this exosome based system um teeth in this in this context have got massive advantages over everything else but probably hair and the, the reasons are, first of all, when you come to try this out on patients, you're not dealing with patients that are really ill, like you are with all the other diseases. You know, these patients are healthy, but they've, they've lost a tooth. And that is a, that's a big, big advantage when you're doing clinical trials. The other advantage is that teeth are non-essential organs. If you get it wrong, you can very easily correct it. You know, if you imagine that you're doing something on the heart and it goes wrong, you're in big trouble. And the final thing is accessibility. 
you don't need patients coming into an operating theatre and having cells injected or transplanted under general anaesthesia by a surgeon. A person walks into a dentist chair, walks into a dentist, sits in a chair, lays back and opens their mouth, basically, local anaesthetic. So those three things are combined together, are massive, and they make teeth the ideal organ in order to develop these techniques and be at the forefront that can then provide the basis for lots of other organs. You know, this has worked in a tooth, so there's no reason why it shouldn't work in a kidney or a heart. It's going to be more difficult to deliver that for all the reasons I've just described. But, you know, we, we regenerative medicine has been around, you know, for however many years now. And, uh, you know, people always say, oh, it's about time something was done. We something was delivered. You know, why can't we make eyes or whatever? Um, and it's because it's not easy. And the hardest part with doing any of this is not the lab research, it's doing it in patients, doing clinical trials. And so if you can do clinical trials on these perfectly healthy patients that are just sitting in a chair for an hour, um, it's a massive, massive advantage. The cost of the trials are a lot less, for example. Uh, and I'd say if it goes wrong, you just get the patient back in and you take it out and start again. So that that's that's an actually a really important point, right? Because BioTooth serves as a spearhead effort for the rest of regenerative medicine, you know, uh, research, you know, to regrow other tissues and organs, which may, you know, involve much more risk than you know a, a tooth organ being implanted. So yeah, exactly, and you're seeing it already, although not advertised as much. So there, there is a big field now in regenerative medicine that is uh, it's called organoids, making little parts of organs. So not organs, but organoids. Uh, massive, massive field for all sorts of different reasons. We've been making tooth organoids for 30 years or more. <laughs> uh, that we, you know, we've been doing them long, long before anybody was making kidney organoids or, or other no organoids. Um, what are organoids? So an organoid is a, a little piece of an organ. So it, maybe you can think of an organoid, something like a, a kidney glomeruli, glomerulus, a single filtration unit. You can make aspects of that in, uh, uh, in, the, in the lab by using all sorts of modern techniques. Um, uh, intestinal organoids, so you can make little pieces of the intestine that mimic the function, reproduce the function of an intestine, but are not a whole intestine. They're just a tiny little bit. We've been making tooth organoids for 30-odd years. Um, and, you know, um, I, I do remind people of this increasingly these days. Um, you know, we, we can make whole teeth. We don't just make tooth organoids. We make tooth organs. So what... What would the world look like, you know, if this research doesn't get properly funded? You know, what what would it also mean for the rest of the field? You know, when when we don't get the opportunity to advance this research, I think the second part of that is 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 a bit difficult because you know you can't predict where advances are going to be made. And there are some fantastic advances being made in, in medicine, regenerative approaches to medicine all over the world, some wonderful stuff. 
I think for dentistry, I, I, I'm, I don't think, let's say we're looking into the future and you can have bits of your kidney replaced with, with regenerative processes, your, you know, bits of your liver, your, your muscles, you know, all these, these things. And you go to your dentist and your dentist is getting a drill out, drilling a hole and putting a lump of metal in your mouth. You know, I think you might want to ask, you know, well, I've, I've just had a half my kidney replaced with, you know, genetically engineered kidney cells. Um, why are you still hammering a lump of metal in my mouth? Can't you make me a new tooth? Kind of thing. And I think it's, it's, it's that kind of level. I think once this, this really does accelerate in the future, there are going to be a, a lot of areas of medicine in particular where regenerative um, processes become part of, a, you know, normal treatment. And I would hate to think that dentistry gets left behind. And what would you say to someone, you know, who's very excited about this research? You know, give, let's, let's say that you get properly funded and you make some really important discoveries about, you know, maintaining that inductive capacity in cells. You're able to form a biotooth. You are now very clear on the science. What would you say to someone who asks this? I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, you know, how can I get it and when? <laughs> I can't answer it. I really can't answer it because they're, they're, until we get past this current block, being able to get these inductive cells, I can't. If we were able to get past the, that block, I wouldn't see any reason why in the subsequent five-year period that the, we wouldn't be able to test this in patients in clinical trials, in, you know, in Phase, you know, all the phases, phase one, phase two, phase three, um, which takes a long time. But until we are able to do that and get past that, that brick wall, um, I, I really, I really couldn't say, you know, I, we're doing other things in regenerative dentistry that are not growing a tooth that are, you know, inducing teeth to repair themselves when you have a, instead of having a filling, the tooth starts to repair itself. And we're hoping to, begin clinical trials next year. So some things come on stream earlier, others will take a longer time. Um, and growing whole organs is, is, is not straightforward. Um, but, you know, each time we do one of these things, we learn. And um, so I, the answer I usually give is this will happen some point in the future. Um I can, I'm, I'm certain of that. I'm certain of some point in the future, it will be a bit like Star Trek and you'll have something whizzed over you to diagnose you and, and you'll get a cell implant and grow a tooth. Um, I just don't know how far in the future. It seems like it's a function less of time and more of, more of effort, right? You know, how, how much advocacy can we build around this? You know, how much, um, of the pub, of the funding bodies, can we persuade to, you know, bet on this approach? You know, given the high potential for um, improving quality of life, you know, for for billions, conceivably. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, it is that. Yeah. What what do, what would it mean for you personally? You know, to to push this to the finish line. How does that affect your life? 
um, I don't think it'd be, I'd be making money to buy more guitars. <laughs> As with all of these things, the scientist is the one that never makes any money out of it. So it's certainly not about money. Um, it's just satisfaction, really. You know, I'm all my career, pretty much, I've been what's called a basic biologist, a discovery biologist. I, I work on discovering things. And I would ne- I never dreamt that I might be in a position where anything I discovered became a clinical treatment of any kind. Uh, and, um, you know, the vast majority of discovery scientists never produce uh, anything that is directly related to clinical treatment. They all influence it, but not directly related. Um, and, you know, I think it would just be nice to, as we've got this far, to be able to take it to its logical conclusion and, you know, be able to 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 produce these regenerative therapies for teeth, biotooth and, and, and the others, um, just for, just to, you know, satisfaction, really. Thank you for that. You know, we're, we're coming up on our time here and we have, there's so many questions that I can explore with you and we might have to do a part two, you know, so, you know, I want to honor your time and give you an opportunity, you know, to ask a question of our audience, you know, given, uh, given the chance to learn something from people who are listening or maybe a call to action, you know, what would that be? Um, yeah, well, I mean, thanks everybody for their interest, certainly. Um, I mean, we have done market research in the past uh, and sort of got all the answers we, we thought we were, we were going to get. I mean, I guess the for Biotooth, the key thing is if you lose a tooth, and you go to a dentist, and a dentist says you can have a metal implant for <coughs> $2,000, or you can have this new wonderful biotooth for $5,000. Assuming everything else is equal and, you know, insurance companies and everything else, you know, how much extra would you pay to have a tooth replaced with a normal tooth as opposed to an implant, a metal implant. And, you know, I'm waving around ballpark figures because I don't know. And, and, and I guess it depends how wealthy you are, I suppose. You know, if you're on Hollywood Boulevard or wherever, you know, <laughs> you pay anything. Um, so I guess it's probably more a question for the insurance companies. But, you know, the, the insurance companies uh, are often driven by what people want and they're willing uh, to, what you know, um what's available <coughs> but so so uh, yeah i mean that's that's one question um you know how uh, if you believe everything i've told you and how much better it's going to be um would you be willing to pay a bit more for it basically and uh i would hope the answer is yes as long as it wasn't a ridiculous amount <coughs> Um, I mean, other than that, I think it's just a matter of, of understanding and information. You know, do, do people, do listeners think they, they've now got enough information to make an informed decision about whether, you know, this is something they find interesting or 
do they feel they need more information or have they had too much? <laughs> um, you know, we, it, it's, it's, it's often difficult to get the science over, um, without sort of dumbing it down and sort of insulting listeners <laughs> in some ways so that everybody understands it. Um, so if they're, you know, if, if it's not understandable or not clear, um, you know, we can always do things about that. Well, you know, we're in a biomedical renaissance, you know, and more than ever, we've seen, you know, uh, more public engagement, um, more public education on, you know, basic technologies and processes for how medical interventions get made. And I certainly... I certainly see this opportunity for bio to, to fit into that, that renaissance. And, you know, next time we catch up, you know, for our part two, you know, I hope that we have, we, we, we have more to talk about and, and hopefully we have some more discoveries, you know, as a result of you carrying out your research plan. I hope so too. Yeah. Well, Paul, you know, thank you so much, you know, for taking the time today to, you know, talk about your work, you know, and lay out the future. Uh, we'll certainly have to continue a part two in some near future time. So thank you again. No, thank you. And, and, um, thanks for your interest, continued interest and for, 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 for picking this up and pushing it forward. I really appreciate that. Hey there, and thank you for listening. If you want to get even more from this episode, head on over to furtherhealth.org to get your show notes and sign up for our periodic newsletter to receive exclusive content and updates. And if you're enjoying the show, Please subscribe to the Further Health Podcast on Spotify, YouTube, Apple, Google, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating or review. This really helps others to discover the Further Health Podcast and keeps the show going so that we can keep delivering more episodes on amazing health span research just for you. So with that, until next time, be well, everyone.